Chapter 9, A Man's a Man for a' That. The title which Burns put above a set of swinging verses, and is quoted at the head of this chapter, is sometimes taken as a Scottish assertion and belief that all men are equal. This is, of course, nonsense, and Burns intended nothing of the kind. What he was, in a short and characteristic outburst of poetic gusto trying to convey, was his and his countrymen's belief in the equal dignity or worth of man in whatever circumstances he might be born. This is a favorite national theme. It it arises from an estimable trait in the Scottish character, but like many estimable traits, one can sometimes have too much of it. Or, to put it another way, your Scot can sometimes harp on a theme a little too insistently. This is a pity, for Burns said it perfectly once and for all. Is there for honest poverty that hings his head in all that? The coward slave we pass him by, we dare be poor for all that. For all that and all that, our toils obscure and all that. The rank is but the guinea stamp, the man's the gold for a' that. And so on for four other rollicking but triumphant stanzas, concluding with that oft-quoted and heartfelt cry of hope, It's coming yet for a' that, that man to man, the world o'er shall brothers be for a' that. Burns wrote these verses at the end of the 18th century when revolution was in the air, and when all over Europe men were looking to France in the hope that old order of privilege would be there be dealt its final death blow. The Scottish poet, however, was not merely writing a set of contemporary political verses, he was expressing a Scottish sentiment which had been less articulately felt in his country for centuries before the French Revolution, and which continued to be felt after the Revolution had been over and done with. The Old Scottish Servant Anyone who can remember the days of domestic service, after all they are not so very long ago, can recall in Scotland the attitude of respectful familiarity assumed by so many of the older Scottish servants. It was not a case of Jack being necessarily as good as his master, but of Jack, or rather Jock or Donald, being quite fearless in the assertion of the dignity of his position in the household. Servants in Scotland were never subservient or obsequious. They respected their master's position, but they equally respected their own. There are not many domestic servants of the old school left, even in the houses of the great today, but the tradition of man's essential dignity in all classes happily continues to thrive. Stories about the relationship between the old type of Scottish servant and the master are innumerable. Some of the best of them are to be found in Dean Ramsay's Reminiscences of Scottish Life and Character. I can, from my own childhood, recall incidents which could illustrate this relationship, but as late as the mid-1930s I overheard a dialogue which was typical and as good as any that I could earlier remember. An elderly Scottish judge who had recently recovered from a cold was standing in the hall of his house in the new town of Edinburgh on a fine spring day. He decided to walk the half-mile or so to his club in Prince's Street and asked his manservant to give him his overcoat. The only reply he received was, "'I'll call you a cab before I give you your coat, sir.' He had called his master sir for many years before the old gentleman's elevation to the bench. There was no reason why he should now change to my lord.' "'But I don't want a cab, John. It's a fine day, and I'll walk,' replied the judge. "'It's no fine enough for you to walk, sir. I'll call you a cab.' "'I intend to walk,' said the judge, now really rather irritably. "'Give me my coat.' 
I'll give you your coat, sir, and I'll no open the door for you until I've called a cab. Oh, very well, capitulated the senator of the College of Justice and sat down to await the cab. An earlier story, which has always pleased me, was of a forefar laird who one day, stung beyond endurance by his manservant's bossiness, decided that he must get rid of him. I'm afraid you and I will have to part, James, he said after one stormy disagreement. I laird was the answer he got. Where are you gone? It never occurred to the old domestic that it might be he who should have to leave the house and lands where he had served for over forty years. Another instance of a similar refusal by an old Scottish servant to accept dismissal is quoted by Dean Ramsay. An old coachman, long in the service of a noble lady, had given much trouble and annoyance, all of which he supposed to be the privilege of his position in the family. The lady eventually told him in the clearest terms that he must go. To this she received the quiet, the quiet answer, "'Na, na, my lady, I'll drove you to your marriage, and... I drove you to your marriage, and I shall stay to drive you to your burial. Another servant faced with dismissal met the issue by the simple statement, Na, na, I'm no gangin'. If you dinna ken what you've a good servant, I ken when I've a good place. The dictatorial powers of John Brown, the humbly-born Scottish servant, over Queen Victoria's household in the north at Braemar and even in her court at London and Windsor, are well known. Brown was not a very agreeable character, and not a good advertisement for the type. Still, he was an example of it. These are instances of a man's a man for all that principle in domestic service carried to its extreme. By no means all old Scottish servants were so high-handed, but they did, if they were of the true type, always maintain their own personal dignity as men and women in the families which they served. They considered themselves to be a part of these families, and though, of course, they had no delusions about their eventual position in relation to their employers, they were, let it be repeated, never subservient or obsequious. No obsequiousness. This lack of subservience and obsequiousness continues today amongst those in Scotland whose jobs are the more menial and humble. Domestic servants in private houses may be something of a rarity these days, but there must be those who, in a public capacity, still serve. Visitors from England and abroad to the Edinburgh Festival, for instance, often comment on the politeness without obsequiousness of our taxi drivers, porters, hotel servants, and the like. One can honestly say that it just would not occur to these humbler servitors to behave in any other way. This is the better side of the principle of a man's a man for all that, and is founded roughly on the idea that every true-born Scot is a gentleman, a relic maybe of the clan system as well as of the Burnsian principle, the less agreeable side of the egalitarian motto finds itself expressed in the graceless idea that nobody is a gentleman. A lack of obsequiousness and subservience is welcome, but a contempt for fine manners merely because they are strange to them is a less pleasant element in some self-consciously proletarian Scottish circles. This is a type, of course, to be found in every country. In Scotland, however, with the capacity of countrymen have, with the capacity our countrymen have of going to extremes, the type is more aggressive and graceless than elsewhere. Fortunately, he is rare. Most Scottish people, from whatever social stratum they come, have, if slightly slow and ponderous, agreeable and naturally gentle manners. The Lad of Parts There is one famous type of Scottish family which has often been mentioned in memoirs of the last century and in popular fiction and in plays. This is the humble family, usually of country and often of highland origin, whose sons have gone out into the world and have won high places. Those members of such families who have remained at home usually manage to preserve an effortlessly modest demeanor about the success of their sons or brothers. 
Many a London gentleman up for the fishing or deer stalking has been startled at the end of a few days to discover, maybe quite by accident, that the gilly who attended him or the boatman who has rowed him on the lock is the father of a famous Harley Street doctor, an Oxford Don, and a world-renowned scientist. Famous men have often come from humble circumstances in other lands. The Scots have a remarkable capacity for producing such famous men. They also have a welcome capacity for not boasting about it in the family circle. This emergence of the great from some humble croft was very much a feature of the 19th, of 19th century Scottish life, before compulsory education was general, and when the native Scots' thirst for learning was general and to be found in all classes. In those days, a lad of parts from some obscure country farm or croft could, with the aid of the local domini, village teacher, not only learn to read, but could guess could get access to the classics of whatever branch of learning he wished to study. He would get a bursary scholarship to one of the four ancient Scottish universities and be far ahead of his opposite numbers in England who then had neither his thirst for learning nor his opportunities for study, albeit impoverished study. And impoverished it certainly often was. Many a Highland student would bring with him to Edinburgh or Glasgow or St. Andrews or Aberdeen a sack of meal and a cask of salt herrings on which he more or less entirely subsisted for the whole term. It was a sign of the pleasanter side of a man's a man for all that principle that such youths were never disregarded by their teachers nor looked down upon by their richer and sometimes aristocratic fellow students. Nowadays, when everyone is taught to read and when talent of any kind from the Sicily Isles to from the Scilly Isles to Shetland is subsidized by the state, such native drive amongst the poor scholars of Scotland is reduced or, le or less necessary. It may continue as much as before, but the results of it are certainly less obvious. But the principle remains, and it remains a Scottish one. If nowadays a lad of parts from anywhere in the British Isles can get his chance in the world of learning, this is nothing new in Scotland. We did not so much invent it, such a system, but we bred young men who made it possible. The clan system. Reference in passing has been made above to the well-known Scottish clan system. No chapter on a man's a man for all that or on the classes in Scotland would be complete without proper mention of it and what force it has today. Let it be said straight away that there is a very great deal of romantic ballyhoo talked nowadays about the clan system and clan loyalty, but it is ballyhoo based upon something that existed in some strength up to the not-so-very-distant past, and when not sentimentalized or boosted for profit, still exists in the hearts of many Scots folk at home and overseas, particularly overseas. Until about 200 years ago, the clan system existed most powerfully in the Highlands, and to a lesser degree amongst such famous lowland families as the Scots, headed by the Duke of Buccleuch. Under this clan system in the Celtic Highlands, thousands of men bearing the same surname as their chief, MacDonald, Campbell, Fraser, etc., owed him absolute allegiance. But it's important to note that it was a family rather than feudal allegiance. He, the chief, was the first among equals. The humblest member of his clan regarded himself as related to him. The clan system was broken by the action of the government after the failure of the rising of 1745. Its spirit, however, was much more seriously damaged by the behavior of many, for too, far too many, of the chiefs. These now found themselves no longer so much family potentates on a large scale as just ordinary landlords owning vast tracts of mountain and moorland. Up until then, this land had belonged to the clan, and the chief merely administered it. Now he was as much a possession of it as was any English squire of his broad acres in the south. Alas, paternalism in many cases gave way to greed the chiefs found. First sheep, then deer forests, more profitable than human tenants. 
And even when those tenants bore the same name as they did and were often blood relations, the chiefs were far too often amongst the worst of those who evicted or at least connived at the eviction of the Highlanders. By no means all of the chiefs behaved this way. The MacLeods of Dunvegan and Skye and the Frasers of Lovat were, amongst others, notable and praiseworthy exceptions. But as regards many of the rest, it is not a pretty story and is unpleasant to dwell upon. But it must be mentioned, for it is the recollection of the behavior of so many chiefs in the past during the sad and bitter period of the clearances that made the contemplation of some of the modern ballyhoo about clan loyalty not only sentimental but distasteful. The fact remains that, though sadly depopulated, there are various districts in Scotland, districts in Scotland associated with various clans, in which you will still find that a number of the crofters bear the same name as the chief. The fact also remains that all over the world, particularly in the New World of Canada and the USA, there are countless Scotsmen who draw to each other by the simple fact that they still bear the same Highland names. But they still like to feel related, or they still like to feel related, no matter how distantly, but still related to each other. Overseas, there are the most active clan associations. associations. These are often composed of men who, descended from emigrants, have now grown wealthy and like to come to Scotland to visit the lands and the clan, ha clan lands of their forefathers. Perhaps with their transatlantic capacity for display, they make rather too much of a fuss about it all. Too much of a fuss, that is, for those native and still resident Scots who remember how the clan system broke down. But they do no harm. They bring some dollars and some warm hearts to Scotland. Clan rivalry is a thing of the past. The intense hatred, for instance, that once existed between the MacDonalds and the Campbells is remembered only in a joking spirit. But the Campbells who come from abroad still like to feel that they are somehow related to the greatest Campbell of all, the Duke of Argyle, and the MacDonalds to whatever one of the MacDonald chiefs with whom they believe themselves to be connected. All this is pleasant and agreeable enough. It is a harmless way of remembering old unhappy things and battles long ago. But perhaps there is something more to be said for the memory of the clan spirit as it exists today. A man bearing one of the great and famous highland names of the past can feel that no matter how humble his circumstances, he is of great inheritance. He is, along with the descendants of the chief, who has the same name as him, as well as many other distinguished bearers of it, a man um, for all that, the aristocracy. The chiefs are, of course, only a part of what is perhaps a little too charitable to call the native aristocracy. Outside the old Highland line and away from the lands that still have some connection with the clans, either historically or by the presence of those bearing clan names, there are plenty of other landed proprietors of ancient but not Celtic descent. Some of these bear names or titles as sonorous and as historically worthy as those of the Highland chiefs, Buckluch, Montrose, and Douglas are but some of these. For the most part, however, the landed aristocracy of Scotland, whether Highland or Lowland, has kept its land and a certain amount of money has become thoroughly anglicized. Some families, the Strathmores, for instance, have been marrying into English families for 200 years. Though their family seats, from which they take their titles, are situated in Scotland, they have joined the ordinary ranks of British. Some of them would even call it the English aristocracy. They send their sons to Eton and Oxford or to other English public schools and to Cambridge or in, uh, to crack southern regiments. The products of such education are certainly agreeable enough. Indeed, there are few pleasanter people to talk to than the well and comfortably educated younger members of the upper classes in these islands who have adapted themselves to modern society without any social complexes of any kind. But in joining this agreeable Freemasonry of the British upper classes, the Scottish aristocracy have for the most part abandoned their nationality. For the most part. But there are and have been honorable exceptions, such as the late Duke of Montrose, the late Duke of Argyle, who with all his eccentricities was a Scottish and European rather than British aristocrat, 
the present Duke of Athol, and R. B. Cunningham Graham, a fiery and passionate Scot, if ever there was one, and one or two others. Mention should be made of the Earl of Crawford and Balcares, who really does not live in but works for Scotland in the arts. Oddly enough, he also holds an English peerage under which he sits in the House of Lords. He is Baron Wigan and has been known to call himself the original Wigan peer. A near neighbor of mine who has some of the best blood in Scotland and who still keeps his land prides himself on speaking Scots in the broadest fashion and is not unlike one of the more eccentric lairds out of a Walter Scott novel. These are exceptions. The ordinary Scottish aristocrat of noble name or of long pedigree is undistinguishable in accent, speech, manner, attitude, or mind from his English counterpart. Apart from his territorial associations with the land that gave his forefathers their birth and their possessions, he sometimes keeps up Scotch customs in his home or in his public life. If he, leaves, if he lives north and west of the Highland line, he will usually wear the kilt. Sometimes he... Uh, he sometimes keeps up associations with the Church of Scotland in his neighborhood, though he will, if he is a churchgoer, probably attend the Church of England with his English relatives when he is south of the border. In joining the agreeable Freemasonry of the British upper classes, the Scottish aristocracy have abandoned their nationality. Illustration. He is a member of one or more of the ancient Scottish orders or foundations such as the Knights of the Thistle, the Royal Bodyguard of Archers, etc. But if you heard a congregation of one of these orders talking together, you would think you were amongst a group of amiable, upper-class Englishmen. For Scott who looks across the Irish Sea, there is one odd thing about this almost incomplete Anglo- almost complete Anglicization, <laughs> almost complete Anglicization of the Scottish aristocracy, the Anglo-Irish, though in blood, religion, and custom cut off from the native Irish, went native in a few generations. Some of the most characteristic Irishmen with all the stage qualities of the Irish are of Anglo-Irish or ascendancy origin. Not so the Scottish aristocrat. His associations with England have made him go native, but go native in an English fashion. Other classes. The upper middle classes, the professional men of wealth in Edinburgh or the rich industrialists of the West, were in the days of my own boyhood consciously Scottish in speech, manner, and outlook. As more and more of them, however, are being sent into England to be educated at various English public schools, this Scottishness is often rubbed off them in boyhood. It is nevertheless interesting to note how many of them revert to type when they come back again to work in the professions or in the paternal and family businesses. The shopkeeping and intermediate class in town and country could, of course, never be mistaken for anything else but Scots. The laboring or industrial classes, when not of foreign extraction, are superbly and unselfconsciously Scots. It is they who are, in a sense, the true gentry of Scotland. In the country, particularly in the Highlands, their manners could not be rivaled by the finest courtiers. In the towns, where industry has overlaid their natural way of living, the more graceless side of their nature tends to emerge. But it is in the country, in the country folk, that you will find men who are men for all that. It is in meeting them that you will get to know the inner meaning of Burns's fire tree, fiery and rollicking poem.